When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. You're listening to American Shadows, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. The world had watched what would become America since the pilgrims landed on Plymouth Rock in 1620. They witnessed the new nation fight in multiple wars and survive encounters with plagues and other diseases. They looked on as the newcomers took land from native peoples and built new cities. They paid close attention through revolutions, external and internal, that tore the new nation apart. After the Civil War, the Reconstruction Era did little to heal the nation as intended. With the Gilded Age, rapid economic growth brought a flood of immigrants looking for a better way of life causing not only culture clashes, but divisions of classes. The nation was always in turmoil, and it suggested that Americans may not have been as civilized as they'd thought. Politicians looking to improve America's status followed in England's footsteps and held a world exhibition in Philadelphia in 1876. But the fair suffered lackluster attendance and lost money, They didn't give up, though, and began to make plans in 1900 for a better, larger, and more elaborate fair, designed to showcase America's inventions and emerging prominence. So Congress convened to decide on a location. Four cities placed bids, New York, Washington, Chicago, and St. Louis. The stakes were high. The winning city would bring in profits, raise real estate values, and elevate their standing among American cities. J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt, and William Waldorf Astor collectively pledged $15 million to host the fair in New York. In Chicago, Marshall Field, Philip Armour, Gustavus Swift, and Cyrus McCormick also put up a substantial amount. But it wasn't until banker Lyman Gage came forward with several million dollars he'd raised in just 24 hours that Chicago took the lead. Impressed with the effort, Congress voted to accept the bid. The World Fair Committee quickly decided on Jackson Park for the site and hired premier landscape architects to develop the plans. The committee envisioned a stunning seascape attraction along Lake Michigan. Plans included a showcase of world-class technology, agriculture, fine art, entertainment, and cuisine. Wanting only the best, Chicago officials hired sculptor Augustus St. Gaudens as artistic director. Later, he'd go on to create the Statue of Lincoln for the Lincoln Memorial. When the plans were complete, their concept rivaled Central Park. Now, developing 690 acres and erecting 200 temporary buildings was no small feat. But Chicago saw it as an opportunity to show how well they had rebuilt after the infamous 1871 fire. And unlike the exposition in New York, Chicago's event would prove successful. 
Over 20 million people visited the fair and continued to talk about it long after it ended. The spectacular event became a cultural touchstone. It's even said that a young Henry Ford found inspiration for his invention, the horseless carriage, after seeing an internal combustion engine at that fair. Despite a smallpox epidemic and a fire that destroyed part of the fairgrounds, Chicago had established itself as one of the nation's most premier and elite cities. Dismantled exhibits found permanent homes in museums across the country. Chicago had set the standard for all other world fairs. Everyone in America, and the rest of the world, seemed pleased with the city's progress. Everyone except David Francis, the mayor of St. Louis. Chicago's industrial and economic growth had outpaced St. Louis for years, and every time the Windy City's popularity increased, David Francis seethed a little more. So, when the International Olympic Committee decided that Chicago would host the 1904 Olympics, the St. Louis mayor was more than just bitter. With a deep-seated hatred for the city, he became determined to outshine Chicago, at all costs. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. Welcome to American Shadows. Though he had no real grounds to complain about the Olympic Committee's decision, David Francis did have a plan. In 1900, he proposed to Congress that St. Louis would host a World Fair as a centennial celebration of the Louisiana Purchase to take place in 1903. Congress agreed, and while that should have pleased him, he wanted more. He still wanted the 1904 Olympics. That would take some scheming, though. The fair, which he already had plans to make bigger and better than Chicago's, was just the start. He just needed time. Literally. If he could quietly delay the fair by a year, he thought he could force the Olympics to come to him without tipping off Chicago until it was too late. You see, Francis had friends in influential places. Namely, 31-year-old Count Henri de Penaloza, a French national and prominent businessman living in St. Louis. The Count's father, Louis Fuss, was also a businessman, and, wouldn't you know it, served on the board of directors for the fair, which became known as the Louisiana Purchase Exposition. In April of 1901, exactly one month before the Olympic Committee met to solidify Chicago as the next host, Penaloza happened to be in France and showed up at the Paris home of the Baron de Coubertin, the president and founder of the Olympic Committee. After some small talk, Penaloza made a strong pitch for the Games to be held in St. Louis instead of Chicago. He explained to the Baron how the Olympics might benefit from the exposition and assured him that St. Louis's mayor had expressed genuine interest in hosting the Games. There was a small catch, however, the delicate political situation of the Games having already been promised to Chicago. Penaloza promised that Mayor Francis would soon send a formal letter to the committee. Coubertin, feeling that his fellow countrymen had made a strong argument, presented the idea to the rest of the Olympic Committee. But after no such letter arrived, Penaloza sent the Baron a telegram informing him that St. Louis city officials were requesting to Congress a formal delay of the exposition, which was a lie. St. Louis couldn't keep their shady plan under wraps for long, though. 
an interview in the Olympics official publication reported on Penaloza's visit. And as you probably would have, newspaper editors, city leaders, and athletes all noticed the conflict between the 1903 date for the fair and the 1904 Olympics. Officials in Chicago wrote the committee several letters stating that they had already been offered the opportunity and had started planning. St. Louis, they pointed out, lacked an official representative and hadn't spoken to Congress about delaying the exposition. In the end, the Olympic Committee dismissed St. Louis as a viable host. Then, in the summer of 1901, the New York Times reported the committee's announcement and Chicagoans celebrated. Thousands of students from the University of Chicago campus attended a bonfire to hear Henry Fuber, tasked with organizing the event, give a celebratory speech. While Chicago set to work on plans, Mayor Francis finally requested the one-year delay for the St. Louis Exposition. The new starting date would be April 30th of 1904, just two days before the Olympics. Meanwhile, unaware of Francis's plans, Coubertin sent President Roosevelt a letter asking him to accept an honorary presidency over the Games. Henry Fuber wasn't immediately concerned when he heard that the St. Louis Exposition was set to open just days before the Olympics. He set sail to Europe to garner support from European leaders and convince top-rated athletes to compete. While Fuber was away, Francis wasted no time with his next move. He and the St. Louis Director of Exhibits decided that the amateur sports competition planned for the fair would fall under the jurisdiction of the Amateur Athletic Union. With that in place, he requested the best American track and field champions to be part of the fair's events, effectively removing them from the Olympics. In August, Fuber learned about Francis's meeting with the Amateur Athletic Union. He realized that the mayor was attempting, unsubtly, to steal the Olympics. Finally worried, Fuber contacted the game's officials. The Olympic officials tried to work out a compromise, but Francis was less than cooperative. He insisted that the only resolution would be for Chicago to transfer the games to the St. Louis Exposition, and made his case to President Roosevelt. He claimed that transferring the games to St. Louis made better sense financially and prevented a division in attendance. Naturally, Chicago was furious. Newspapers printed reasons against having the Olympics in St. Louis, ranging from limited sports facilities to the climate. Francis was unshaken. He began a campaign to strong-arm officials in New York and the Olympic Committee, while launching a flurry of press releases designed to turn public perception in his favor. As part of his rather divisive marketing campaign, Francis stated that the celebration of the Louisiana Purchase was a prominent American event, and that if the Olympics were held in Chicago, the fair would be overshadowed. And the mayor didn't stop there. He used one of those anti-St. Louis newspaper articles to his advantage. The article quoted Fuber, and Francis sent the article to the Olympic Committee, along with a note twisting his words and painting his opponent as weak, casting doubt that he could effectively plan the games. And Francis contacted the French Commissioner of Commerce, who just happened to have strong ties to the Louisiana Purchase Celebration, to apply political pressure on American and Olympic Committee officials to transfer the Games. On February 10th of 1903, Baron de Coubertin believed he had little choice but to transfer the Olympic Games to St. Louis. Underhanded? Absolutely. 
As it turned out, Francis's methods could have won a gold medal of a different sort. Corruption Newspapers across the country reported the conflict between St. Louis and Chicago. And it didn't take much to figure out that Mayor Francis had been rather underhanded in obtaining the games. While other mayors might have been embarrassed, Francis was delighted. In 1902, the journalist Lincoln Steffens published an article in McClure's magazine telling of deep-seated corruption in St. Louis from the mayor to the police department. In 1904, just before the Olympics, Steffens collected this and other work in the book The Shame of the Cities, which highlighted corruption in several American cities. He called out the shameless manner in which the Olympics had been stolen and dubbed St. Louis the worst governed city in America. He warned that its political leaders were intent on, quote, devouring their own city. None of the cities he wrote about were painted prettily, but Stephen's description of St. Louis was particularly dismal. A tap water contaminated with mud, trash-filled streets, badly paved roads, and fire-trap apartments, vote-buying, blatant fraud, and misuse of power. In short, he wrote, St. Louis was more urban decay than world-class city. Still, Mayor Francis believed his city deserved recognition. Over 575,000 people called it home, and it had the largest train station, brewery, chemical plants, and electric plant. He had been planning the exposition since 1900, and had settled on land just outside the city proper in Forest Park. Workers lived on the 1,272-acre site in tents, earning $1 to $5 a day. That's around $30 to $145 in today's income. As a final insult to Chicago, Francis appropriated two items used in their World's Fair. A golden telegraph key that signaled machine operators to start up equipment, and the famous 264-foot Ferris wheel that had been a pinnacle of the 1893 fair. A reconstruction of the Ferris wheel cost nine men their lives. Francis also managed to get the Liberty Bell on loan. It had never left Philadelphia before, and has never left since. He had former President Ulysses S. Grant's country log cabin removed from its foundation and brought to the fairgrounds. He also had the rail car that had transported Lincoln's body brought in. On the morning of April 30th, 1904, a brilliant blue sky greeted patrons gathering at the fair entrance for opening day. At 9 a.m., a band led a procession from the Hall of Congress to the fairgrounds. Mayor Francis took to the podium. Enter herein, ye sons of men, he shouted. Learn the lesson here taught and gather from it inspiration for still greater accomplishments. From the East Room in the White House, President Roosevelt made a short speech by telegraph. Once the golden telegraph key was pressed, the whir of machinery hummed, fountains flowed, and bands played. The gates swung open, and the fair began. Inside, patrons delighted at a horse taught to do tricks. In a nearby corral, ostriches drew onlookers who had never seen such a creature. Further in, an expansive food court hosted vendors from all over the country. Mark Twain, Henry James, and Frank Lloyd Wright, among others, were spotted at the fair. Future President Woodrow Wilson attended an academic presentation. In the main auditorium, Helen Keller gave her own lectures. 
for the science-minded, x-ray machines and a primitive version of the fax machine were on display. To showcase progress in the medical field, people could visit an exhibit of infant incubators containing real infants. While a doctor was on hand, he knew little about premature babies. Instead, ten nurses worked around the clock to care for them. The incubators overheated quickly in the hot sun. Fed nothing but cow's milk and oatmeal, the infant's digestive systems couldn't adjust. As a result, both incubators and infants were frequently soiled, drawing thousands of flies. During the length of the fair, 39 of the 43 infants died. And infants weren't the only humans on display. Francis had wanted to not only showcase the city, but to suggest that human evolution had peaked at the fair. To demonstrate, he hired an anthropologist to build a human zoo. Inside, visitors passed exhibits described as most primitive to most advanced. Francis's objective was to prove that the conquering of land and of peoples considered to be unintelligent, uncivilized heathens had been worthwhile, to their benefit, even. To him, such a display was the penultimate celebration of American ingenuity and progress. The fair paid 50 groups of people from around the world to participate. Deemed most primitive were indigenous American, South American, and Filipino peoples. These groups were labeled savages and instructed to act as such for the patrons. While America wasn't the first to put humans on display, Francis had been determined that St. Louis's would be the biggest display of human hierarchy yet. The vast villages drew thousands of visitors. For five cents, patrons could pose for a photograph with an Indian chief. For another five cents, they could coax a cannibal to show them his teeth that had been filed into points. Otabenga, a man from the Booty people of the Congo who had been purchased from slave traders years prior for an exhibition at the Bronx Zoo, wasn't a cannibal at all. Benga and other Africans had been paid to behave aggressively and appear warlike. The dances and chants were often improvised to mimic those in the Native American exhibits. The human zoo became the talk of the city. A riot nearly broke out when a rumor spread of dating occurring between some of the Igorot men in the Filipino exhibit and white women. Viewers were aghast at the minimal native dress. Sporting events leading up to the Olympics drew even more crowds. To demonstrate how successfully Native Americans had been assimilated into a more civilized culture, the Fort Shaw Indian School basketball team showed off their skills, besting every team who challenged them. The exposition may have showcased technological, industrial, and other advances, but in terms of human compassion and equality, there was nothing to be proud of. And when the Olympic Games began, that continued lack of humanity, disguised as superiority and glory, was on full display. Baron de Coubertin wouldn't attend. He was still harboring resentment that the games had been moved from Chicago. He later recalled that the, quote, Olympiad would match the mediocrity of the town. Francis had been successful in creating a fair unlike any other. And while he'd schemed hard to steal the Olympic games from Chicago, he didn't consider them the highlight of the fair. 
he had failed to secure many of Europe's best athletes after all the bad press. Sure, the games did have their moments of spectacular performances. Gymnast George Iser, who had a wooden leg, won three gold medals. Frank Kegler won medals in wrestling, weightlifting, and tug-of-war. James Lightbody from Chicago came away with the gold for the 800-meter dash, the steeplechase, and the 1,500-meter race, for which he set a new world record. Two Irish athletes and a German swimmer also won gold medals, while Canada took the gold in football. But with the lack of competitors from other countries, the United States won the majority of the events. As a nod to the ancient Greek games, the organizers thought a marathon would be the pinnacle sporting event. Some of the participants had won or placed well in the Boston Marathon, while others had competed in prior Olympic marathons. But, oddly, most were not runners at all. Ten had never run in a marathon before entering. The most experienced runners and favorites were American Sam Miller, Albert Carey, Arthur Newton, and Thomas Hicks. Another American, long-shot Fred Lorse, also joined his countrymen at the starting line, as well as two men from the South African Human Zoo exhibit. A former mailman from Cuba, Felix Carbajal, had raised funds to enter. Still flush with money upon his arrival, he gambled it away and had to walk and hitchhike from New Orleans. He hardly seemed ready to compete, wearing a long-sleeved shirt, long dark pants, street shoes, and a beret. With temperatures in the 90s and stifling humidity, the 24.85-mile course encompassed grueling terrain. Runners not only had to deal with the oppressive heat, but seven hills, too, some 300 feet high with steep ascents. Debris and cracked pavement created trip hazards. Then there were the cars. You see, officials hadn't thought to block off the course, and the runners had to dodge cars, wagons, trolleys, trains, and pedestrians. Making things worse, water stops were limited to a water tower at mile marker 6 and a well at 12 miles. The competitors didn't know it, but the marathon was also a part of an experiment testing the effects of dehydration. Coaches and doctors drove alongside the runners, often kicking up dust clouds. Without water, the runners experienced frequent coughing spells. One runner collapsed from inhaling dust and was taken to the hospital where he was treated for hemorrhaging. Another runner gave up after several bouts of vomiting. Felix maintained the lead, even after stopping to chat with bystanders. He grabbed two peaches from onlookers and ate them while he ran. Further along, he ate apples he had come across in an orchard. The apples caused him cramps, and he sat under a tree to rest. There, he fell asleep. Sam took the lead, but fizzled out with a bad case of runner's cramps. Fred caught a ride in one of the cars pacing the runners. He cheerfully waved to the other runners and the crowd as he passed. Tom Hicks begged his assistants for water, and received mere drops of warm water from a sponge. Seeing he had seven more miles to go, they gave him egg whites laced with strychnine. The poison is also a stimulant in small doses, and no rules barring the practice of doping had been implemented. Meanwhile, Fred Lorse, now well-rested after riding in a car for 11 miles, got out and resumed running. He crossed the finish line first, in just under three hours. 
President Roosevelt's daughter, Alice, was on hand to present the medals. Just as she was about to place the gold around Fred's neck, someone called him out for cheating. Caught, Fred told the angry crowd that he had no intention of accepting the medal. Still on the course, Tom Hicks plowed onward, though his face had become ashen. He was given brandy and sponged down with water. With just two miles to go, he gave it all he had. Then the hallucinations set in. He began to lament that the finish line was still 20 miles away. He begged for food and a chance to rest. His assistants gave him more brandy and spiked egg whites. Tom pushed on over two more hills. He shuffled past the stadium, swaying barely on his feet. Assistants kept him upright until he made it across the finish line. After he was declared the winner, doctors finally took him to the hospital. Albert Carré finished second and Arthur Newton third, with Felix Carbajal in fourth. Eighteen other runners failed to finish the race. Tom Hicks survived, but barely. Another dose of poison would have killed him. He lost eight pounds during the race. He told reporters that the course was the worst he'd ever run. Mayor Francis achieved his goal of putting St. Louis in the history books, but probably not the way he expected. The 1904 games were considered the worst in Olympic history, and the marathon had the dubious distinction of being not only the slowest in Olympic history, but also the strangest. By the time the 1904 Summer Olympics ended, the United States had won more medals than any other country. Never satisfied, though, David Francis planned more events. For two days, people from the human zoo would compete in a variety of sporting matches, such as baseball throwing, shot put, running, broad jumps, weightlifting, and tug-of-war. The head of the fair's Department of Anthropology, William McGee, believed the people on display there were intellectually inferior, yet physically superior. McGee was excited about proving out his theory with these events as experiments. Many of the test subjects lacked formal schooling and no intelligence, and no intelligence tests were given. McGee and the organizers expected the participants to compete in sports they'd never been exposed to and with little explanation of the rules. About a hundred men competed in the events. Women were not permitted. Each was told to mimic their white Olympic counterparts. McGee stood on the sidelines, jotting down data on what he called racial hierarchy. In one of the sprints, participants stopped before hitting the ribbon strung across the finish line, choosing instead to wait for the rest of their team. The tug-of-war didn't appeal to the contenders, who saw no value in pulling others into a mud pit. Participants from Uganda were more curious about the use of a starting gun than in running sprints. They chose to run backward in wobbly figure eights, rather than racing to the finish line. In the pole climb, one man decided to remove his clothing before climbing, while another man chased away the photographer. Like the marathon, the anthropology days flopped. The participants, although paid, didn't care about competing against others in what they considered silly games. McGee concluded that they were primitive natives, either ignorant, bent on making a spectacle of the events, or lacking proper incentive. 
In the end, all of it, the incubators, the human zoo, even the sporting events, all of it came across as more of a sideshow than a demonstration of humanity. Greed, it seems, was the anchor holding back the ship of progress. All we can do today is hope that this won't always be the case. There's more to this story. Stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear all about it. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com iHeart. That's LifeLock.com iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. As lackluster as the 1904 Summer Olympics had been, 1912 was a different story. After winning the pentathlon and decathlon, Jim Thorpe stood for the medal ceremony. King Gustav V of Sweden draped the two gold medals round Thorpe's neck and pronounced him the world's greatest athlete. Thorpe's modest reply? Thanks. He shunned being the center of attention, declining invitations to parties in his honor. When questioned about his lack of celebration, Thorpe replied, I didn't wish to be gazed upon as a curiosity. He loved sports, but disliked the spotlight. His elusiveness led to stereotypical stigmas. Some believed he didn't appreciate the natural and raw talent gifted him and called him lazy, blaming his Native American heritage. Nothing could be further from the truth. He trained hard, harder than most athletes, he ran all night through the woods, often at the heels of his dogs. And since he was six, he'd known how to shoot a gun and accompanied his father on 30-mile hunting treks. He was an exceptional wrangler. He tamed wild horses, which he spent hours watching. It would be their fluid movements he sought to emulate. To watch him run always brought about comments, positive and negative. He either moved like the wind or had a certain indifference. 
Either way, the looseness and fluidity he'd copied from nature made him a star athlete, along with his training and hard work. When he was in high school, he broke the school's record for the high jump while wearing his street clothes. From there, he played both football and baseball. At 24, he'd entered the Olympics out of love for his sweetheart, Iva Miller. You see, her parents disliked him. Not thinking that his race had anything to do with their objection, he sought to prove that an athlete could earn good money. The two married a year later. In 1913, the Olympic Committee stripped Thorpe of his medals because he'd played semi-professional baseball before entering the Games. He wasn't the first to do so. Some of his white counterparts had done the same thing without consequence. He wrote a letter explaining his mistake had been just that, but the Olympic Committee denied his request to return his medals. When the word got out about his minor league past, two professional offers came in, the New York Giants and the St. Louis Cardinals. Thorpe chose the Giants, who went on to win the 1913 league championships. After the Giants lost the World Series, the team joined the Chicago White Sox in a world tour. Later, during a game against the Chicago Cubs, Thorpe drove in the winning run during the 10th inning. By the time he left baseball, he had 91 home runs and a .252 batting average from 289 games. Olympic medalist, professional baseball player, high jumper, wrangler, horse tamer, runner. But that wasn't all. During college, he excelled at hockey, boxing, lacrosse, swimming, and basketball. It seemed he could do anything. His first love, though, was football. In high school, Thorpe was a two-time All-American. He went on to play for the Ohio Canton Bulldogs, who won three championships. He also played for several All-American Indian teams, as they were called at the time. Aside from high school and college football, he's known for his time in what would become the National Football League. He excelled at passing, catching, tackling, kicking, and punting. He played for six teams during his career. And in 1920, when the NFL was first organized, the charter members named him as the league's first president. As the years went on, public outcry pressured the Olympic Committee. Besides stripping Jim Thorpe of his medals, they refused to restore his name in the records. It had been an act designed to do more than just punish him for his pre-Olympic status. Refusing to acknowledge his victories was meant to obscure him. He once told his daughter, Grace, why he didn't continue fighting to defend his reputation in the Olympics. I won him, he told her, and I know I won him. And that he did. He had beaten his closest competitor in the 1,500-meter run by five seconds. His record stood until 1972. And in the pouring rain, he had won the 100-meter dash in a time that remained unequaled until 1948. He won the high jump in mismatched shoes since his own mysteriously went missing that morning. And in the hurdles, he set a record that lasted until 1948 as well. Even his other competitors said that Thorpe was deserving of the medals. Sadly, Jim Thorpe passed away in 1953 at the age of 65 from heart failure. He had been living in poverty. Two years after his death, the NFL's MVP award was named the Jim Thorpe Trophy. In 1963, the Associated Press named him the best athlete since the turn of the century. That same year, the NFL inducted him into the Hall of Fame. 
1982, biographers Robert Wheeler and Florence Ridlin gained assistance from Congress. The two provided evidence that the International Olympic Committee hadn't followed their own rules in rescinding medals. They'd waited a year. The limit for reviewing medals is just 30 days. In 1983, the committee delivered replicas of his medals to his family. Though they had reinstated his medals, the committee listed him as co-winner and refused to overturn the expungement of his record-breaking wins. Their excuse? They claimed that his wins may be unofficial since Native Americans were not recognized as American citizens until 1924, 12 years after Thorpe competed. Even today, though, he continues to make history. Since 1986, the Jim Thorpe Award has been given to the top defensive back in college football. And in 2001, Thorpe was named the greatest athlete of the century. In 2020, several groups, headed up by PictureWorks Entertainment, which is developing a movie about Thorpe's life, came together to circulate a petition for the Olympic Committee to list Thorpe as the sole winner of the events he won in 1912. After all, the government's refusal to acknowledge Native Americans' rights as citizens until 1924 is itself an injustice. Why punish Thorpe for it? Jim Thorpe is buried in Pennsylvania. The town of Chung bought his remains from his third wife, who needed the money at the time. They erected a monument to him where visitors still flock to gaze upon the memoria. His children have fought for their father's remains to be reinterred where he grew up, on Sac and Fox Nation land in Oklahoma. They appealed to the Supreme Court that their father is not a museum piece. And sadly, on October 5th of 2015, the case came to an end when the court refused to hear the matter. Perhaps the words of Mayor David Francis on opening day of the 1904 World's Fair are appropriate after all. May we all learn our lessons that were taught here and gather from them the inspiration necessary for greater accomplishments. American Shadows is hosted by Lauren Vogelbaum. This episode was written by Michelle Muto, researched by Ali Steed, and produced by Miranda Hawkins and Trevor Young, with executive producers Aaron Menke, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. To learn more about the show, visit GrimmanMile.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles, ready for next day installation, and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.